Christ Forming the Church. It is Dr. Joel Hunter's series, and he continues with his seventh message, In the Fellowship. From the New American Standard, Dr. Hunter's text is taken from Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and it reads as follows. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. And now, let's join Dr. Joel Hunter for his seventh message entitled, In the Fellowship, as he continues his series, Christ Forming the Church. You know, if you've been here uh, for a little while, uh, we're taking the whole year to preach about relationships. Uh, on our ten-year journey towards spiritual maturity, there is a continuing theme in all of Scripture about why and how God puts people together. That it's not by accident that he puts it together. That he has a design. And so, therefore, we are investigating that. And we're up to the part where he forms specifically the church for his purpose. Now, last week I threatened uh, to uh, preach for four weeks on a single verse. And uh, this week I'm going to continue to make good on that threat. If, if, if you want to know what verse that is, it's Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It describes the way that God put together the original church. You see, God did not form the original church by accident or by human whim or by human talent. He built it upon four pillars of inexhaustible strength. Read with me that verse. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Remember last week I said that there is an accurate understanding of the living and written word of God. And that it has nothing to do with our opinions or our feelings. It is eternal. And we build the church, the true church, on that accurate understanding. And so therefore there is something eternal in our understanding by which our relationships are built. Now, this week we're going to talk about that same quality in our relationships. There's something that God does in our relationships that is eternal. Read on with me. To the apostles' teaching and to... In, in Greek, it is they. There's an article in there, te. Uh, and to the fellowship. Indicating that this is a distinct fellowship. It's not fellowship like you or I think of. There's a, there's a, there's a distinct, there's a pronounced fellowship. Into the fellowship. And to the breaking of the bread. And to, again, in, in Greek, it is the prayers. Now, let's talk about fellowship this week because... There is a distinct kind of fellowship that God builds that very few people, Christians included, understand. What comes to your mind when you think of the term fellowship? Well, I think fellowship in the church, and, and fellowship is a churchy term. Whenever you hear the word fellowship, you immediately think church. Because nobody else uses it, you know? And there's this... There's this kind of tapioca, mild, semi-lumpy feeling about the word fellowship. It, it's kind of like, well, you know, instead of hanging around in bars, we'll, we'll go hang around the nice people at the church and we'll, we'll try to have some fun with them, at least as much fun as you can have with church people. But that's fellowship. Well, that's not 
how God designed the fellowship. That might be the quality of the fellowship you now have. But that's not what God designed for fellowship. You see, God had something much more distinct and more transcendent and much stronger than that in mind, as usual. God decided at this point in history to build an entire people through a now-connected vertical link. Jesus Christ provided that connection as was never provided before. And now there was going to be a new people. And this word fellowship in the New Testament is koinonia. You've heard of that before. Koinonia, and, and we usually define that word fellowship, but listen to how else it's defined. It's, it, it also means participation. It also means sharing. It also means partnership. It, it's got all of these active, active verbs tied to it. You see, you can't... Be a passive participator. You can go into fellowship and sit there like a lump in tapioca, but you can't be a passive participator. If you're a full partner, that means you are fully authorized to make a difference. So this word from the very beginning is a much stronger word. Where does that power come from? Well, in the Old Testament, the closest Hebrew word we have to it is shalem. They used to have... Uh, Shalem offerings, peace offerings. Uh, and and, and uh, push, uh, push comes to shove in the Septuagint, it would be fellowship offerings. You know what that is? That's when you go to God and you try to make up for the relationship you have broken. You try to make a peace between you and God. The next step of that, by the way, is the one we're taking next week. After they would make that offering, then they would have a meal together. And out of that vertical, now corrected relationship would come healthy friendship, mutual believer relationships. To, this week we're talking about fellowship. Next week we're going to be talking about the breaking of the bread. It happens just like it happened in that peace offering. So there is this sense in which there is a special uh, 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 gathering that is not made out of human need, it's not made out of how much you and I talk like each other or how much we think alike. It, it's made out of what God has called together for His purposes. And He's not called a bunch of passive people together. That's why one of some of the reasons we, we structure things like we do, that's why we cut out all the instruments. Most most time you have huge choirs to, to kind of, uh, you know, listen to. And you're the choir here. And when, we, when all the instruments cut out, you can hear yourselves. What is that? That's participation in worship. We've had more things, as I said, go wrong with this worship service. You know what? We don't care. Because it doesn't depend on the, on the, the technical uh, expertise. What depends, the worship depends on how you share with God when you come in here. That's what worship is. It's how you participate. It's how your partners. And so therefore, here we are in this situation where fellowship is beginning to be defined by participation. If you want a biblical reference for that, by the way, Philippians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 reads like this. Paul is writing to the church at Philippi, talking about how much he prays for these people. And he says this, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel. Koinonia, there's that word again. Only here, it is, it is indicated participation. Because we're in this thing together. 
So therefore, the first definition, the first biblical definition of the fellowship has nothing to do with our personal tastes, has nothing to do with our personal needs. It has everything to do with who God has called together. You know, the, the Greek word for church is ekklesia, the called out ones. Ekklesia means to call, ek means out of. It, it, it means God has literally called us out. You are not here by accident this morning. You realize that? Now, what, what part of your humanness got up and wanted to come to church this morning? Oh, I can't wait to get to church. If there was any inkling in, in you at all to do that, it wasn't from your flesh. It was from the Spirit. God has called you here. This is not an accident. You didn't, you didn't end up here just, oh, wow. I, you know, what would it be like if after I got done with my ministry every day, I'd, I'd drive into my garage and, and go into the kitchen and greet my wife and say, this is so weird. Every day I get done with work and I come to the same house. This is strange. And you're always here. This is very nice. I like this. But how does this happen? My wife would have me committed, wouldn't she? And rightly so. Well, how is it that we think that we are any less called by God together? We're in a, certainly a, re, a different relationship, but do you think that God is any less active in calling us together than He is in putting people together for ministry together for us of their lives? What, what's, what's God kind of run out of steam when He gets to the general population? No. God still calls people together. By his own design. You can read it right in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 18, if you like. This is what it says. But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. There it is. Black and white. God has placed each one of you here just as he desired. So he says, this is an accident. And it certainly is not something that just comes out of human need. You know, there are a lot of people who think that they're going to church because there's a better quality of possible relationships there. And, and, and they don't want to be lonely. I mean, people come to church because they don't want to be lonely. So they go and they try to make friends with some nice people, at least initially, not knowing that we're all sinners. I mean, people have a funny thing about church. You know, they don't understand that the thing that pulls us all together is that we've all admitted our sin and our inadequacy. So, anyhow, there just seems to be a better crowd. The problem here just seems to be. The problem here, though, is that when we form relationships on the basis of our need, eventually we know how empty that is. There's a man by the name of Coupland who, who wrote a, a recent bestseller, Generation X. After that, he wrote another book called Life After God. At the end of this book, he, he admits that he's a broken man, that life doesn't work without God, although he doesn't seem to know where to find him. But one of the things he says at the end of that book, he says, you know, I regret the road my life has taken. And he starts listing the things that he's not satisfied with. And one of the things he lists, he says, I regret the halfway relations, relationships that I have simply to not have to worry about loneliness. How many of you right now, if you thought through your relationships, would know you've got a lot of halfway relationships 
And the main reason that you maintain those is so you won't have to worry about not having anybody. Because halfway relationships are better than no relationships. I'm telling you, God didn't design you for that. I'm telling you, there's an all-the-way relationship. And that relationship comes down from heaven. And when you understand that your relationship with God lets you have that all-the-way relationship, then something starts to happen. If you want another scriptural reference for that, 1 John, verse 3 and 7, it says this, What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. This is the truth of God. This is the, this is the accurate understanding that we talked about last week. This is the apostles' doctrine. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. What are the results? Look at what it says. That you also may have fellowship with us. Where does the fellowship come from? It comes from understanding who God is in your life. It comes from participating in whatever, wherever Jesus is. You know what? If Jesus is in your life, and Jesus in, is in my life, I want to find Him in your life. That's the basis upon which we have a relationship. That's the basis, by the way, on which my wife and I have a relationship. I didn't marry her to answer my needs. I married her because I recognized in her that God had made somebody to be partners with me in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that he does the same thing for all of us. And it's been a wonderful relationship. Is it fun? Absolutely. We have absolutely hilarious times together. But it's deeper than that. And so is this koinonia, this fellowship. It says in verse 7, If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So there's this, there's this quality of relationship that God wants to raise up out of the midst of the people that he's gathered. Now I want to tell you, I believe that's a very difficult task in today's society. You know why? Because our entire culture is built around the concept of self. This should not be any great news to you. If you go into a bookstore, any bookstore, and ask to see the list of books they have in print, you will find 749 of those books. The title begins with the word self. 499 of those books are listed under self-help. 349 of those books are listed under self-realization. I love that. Uh, I think it was something like 214 or 205 of the books are, are earned a self-actualization and so on down the line. We are absolutely enamored with self. Now, how do you build a relationship when you're simply looking for something to augment yourself? When you're looking for something to accessorize yourself? It's not that Christians never think of self. Christians, through the years, have tried to recognize what the true self is. You know what we've recognized? That the self is part of our problem. When I look at myself, I'm saying, there's a part of the problem. There's mirrors in my house. I can see myself. And, and I look at myself and say, Whoo, there's a person who left to himself always does what he doesn't want to do. Always will get himself in trouble. It's not that I don't have a self. That's Buddhism. Buddhism says the self is illusion. Christianity says there's a self there, but there's a giant problem. But here we have a culture who is telling us just the opposite. They say the self isn't the problem. The self is the answer. You know, if you just get enough self-esteem, 
Then your problems will go away. You'll feel better about yourself. If you just have enough self-realization. Oh, I tell you what. Get self-actualized. Then, whatever that is. Get self-actualized, Maslow would say. Then you're on the road here. Well, I don't think so. Paul Vitz, who is a uh, tremendous uh, Christian psychologist, wrote a book recently called Psychology as, a, as Religion. And in, that psych, in that book, he says exactly what I just told you. He said, you know, we have a different uh, mentality about the self today. He says, as a matter of fact, what we've created in this nation is 260 million supreme beings. And he's right. Well, what do we do about that? Well, I'll tell you what we do these days. We, we get into small groups. That, that will certainly help me not be so self-centered. Well, that's a good answer. And I tell you what, I back small groups. I think everybody ought to have a, a support and an encouragement group. I, 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 I think that's great. And there are, there are lots of small groups. There are both Christian and, and, and uh, non-Christian small groups. All of them help focus toward certain goals and so on and so forth. I, I think the church could learn a lot from from groups that are not specifically Christian. I think the church could learn a lot from 12-step groups. I think the, the church could learn a lot from Amway groups. I really do. I think, I think the church could learn something. And I think the church is wonderful in that it wants to form these small fellowship groups. But you know what? That's not the full answer. Because, as you know, if you belong to a small group, yourself can still dominate that small group. Robert Withnow, who is a sociology professor at Princeton, uh, wrote a book uh, recently called Sharing the Journey, and it's about small groups. And he says there's some very healthy things about small groups. But anybody who belongs to a small group can completely dominate that small group and be confirmed in their, so, their own selfish individualism in that they use that small group just to spout off, off about their own lives. You can go and have the illusion of community and not have community. If you go into a small group and say, well, listen to my problems this week, listen to what I did this week, so on and so forth, that's not community, that's just an audience. And so therefore, the, group, the small group movement is not the total answer. What's the answer? The answer is the biblical koinonia that God will raise up that's, that's beyond a small group, that will raise up in our midst. And you know what? I can't describe it to you. I can't describe it to you because it's nothing you can build. It's just something that you can see when it rises up in your midst. It's something that God does when we're called together, and He does it not on the basis of our opinions or our needs, but does it on the basis of what He's building for His kingdom. Last night, Becky and I went to uh, the uh, big event. Uh, once a month, the singles here have a... Uh, um, a thing they call the big big event, and, there, and this is the singles that are, I think, in the like 20s and 30s, um, and they go to a Reformed Theological Seminary, and they get in their chapel, and and they just have this kind of cut up time. You know, it's no heavy teaching or anything like that, but there's a couple 300 singles there, and and uh, and Becky and I were invited last night. They have a uh, kind of a Johnny Carson show takeoff, and they interview people and all that kind of stuff. So we went for the first time. We're sitting in this balcony area, and we're seeing all of these singles down there, young, good-looking singles, you know? Well, we're kind of watching them. And, they're, and you know, any event like that, you're kind of checking out the possibilities. You know? You are. I mean, 
You know, you're single, that's what you think about, and you're going in there, and you're, yeah, that, yeah, all right. Yeah, all right, over there, too. You're kind of looking around, you know? Well, the evening went on, you know, and it was absolute stitch. I mean, it is fun to go to these things. I mean, they're, they're, they're so well done. Meanwhile, we're sitting there, you know, this old married couple sitting up there, and we're looking down, you know. Our first thought was meat market. <laughs> you know. But here is what God said to us both. You know, in the midst of all this, there's nothing wrong with looking for potential spouses. There's nothing wrong with looking for people to become personally um, uh, befriending of. But I'm going to do something more than that. You know, as we were looking at these people, God said, I'm going to raise up in the middle of these singles a group of people that are forever bound together for my work. That's koinonia. Just the the vision of that happening. That was koinonia. That's what God does that is common to all of his people in every age. Yesterday, Orlando and I went down to to a, a luncheon at Quincy's where several... Uh, different ministries were gathered together to try to, to support uh, a new black church in town. There is a, uh, uh, an organization called Urban Evangelical Ministries uh, that comes out of Dallas Seminary. or Well, it does come out of Dallas Seminary, actually. Um, Dr. Reuben Carter started this thing, and their thing is to, is to plant healthy black churches in cities all around the country. Um, and and we want to get churches going. I mean, we want to support as many churches, as many healthy churches as we can. So, so Orlando and I went down there to listen how they would do this. And this prospective pastor stood up. They haven't got a place yet. They're thinking about the southwestern part of the city. But this prospective pastor stood up and we said, how would you build a church if you built it? Well, he started in to how he would build the church. And it was absolutely marvelous to listen to. He said... What I do is I built it on the Word of God because people will always mess things up unless they are built on the Word of God. And he said, I would have a strong discipling effort. effort. I would have a strong accountability effort. I I pray for for 12 families where there is still the strong male committed leadership in those families who will learn the Word of God and become spiritual leaders to their families and so on and so on. Everything he was describing, I was sitting there thinking, you know, if I was starting all over again, that's exactly what I'd do. And I thought to myself, this thought just crossed my mind. You know, several years ago, there was a, there was a phrase that said, it's a black thing you wouldn't understand. And, and then after that came t-shirts that said, that took off on that, said, it's a, it's a youth thing you wouldn't understand. Some young people were wearing that. And then some, some, some other t-shirts said, it's a woman thing you wouldn't understand. You know, and I'm sitting there thinking, this is a God thing. I do understand. You see, God pulls out of his people a common vision because it is not based on our differences. It's based on what God is doing eternally in the lives of people. I love it. I, I, I see the same thing happening in the, in the youth here. We have, I just marvel at the, at the youth here and wish Many times that the adults could learn from what the youth are doing. One of the things that the youth are doing is, is uh, dividing up into home groups of their own, and these are led by youth who are committed to God. The one that I'm, that I'm very aware of is one that our, meets in our home every week for the teaching session. 
No adults allowed, you know, just youth in there unless, unless they have questions. But these kids come in, in the first half hour, they laugh till they're almost thrown up. <laughs> which, I, which I think probably all Christian groups ought to do, you know, when they first get together. Because that way we don't take ourselves quite so seriously, and that's a good exercise, you know, get those endorphins going. Then, they study the Word seriously. I mean seriously. For a half hour, 45 minutes, they're going, they go through the books of the Bible, verse by verse. Then... They pray for one another. And, and, and when I'm home, I can't help but listen into that prayer time. You know, I'm kind of at the door. They have the sweetest prayer time. I mean, sometimes 20, 30 minutes praying for one another. I mean, sharing, you know, literally with each other their heartfelt fears. Now, this isn't just a small group of Christians that has shut the world out. I mean, they invite non-Christians. There's one kid that comes who has everything on his body pierced. I mean, it's just, he comes in the door and he's got his eyebrows pierced, and his, his ear pierced, and his stuff pierced. And his, he, he came in a few weeks ago and had his tongue pierced. He goes, oh. Fascinated the kids. You know? He's not a believer, but he comes and he's listening. God's drawing him in, you know. So, so they're just not just a little clique of kids who believe in God and everybody else. You know, they draw. And these kids, I'm telling you, they started, you know, and, and for about a year and a half they started, they were just meeting once a week and seeing each other at different church functions. And then they started hanging out together, you know. And, and, and all in the last three, three, four months they have spent Two, three, four, five, sometimes six nights a week together. They just, they're, they're best friends. Some kid has a problem with his car, the guys go over and help him fix the car. Some kid runs over, literally, uh, a, a sprinkler lawn set, and some go, oh, I think I know how to fix that, and they all go fix it together. And they, and they, they watch movies together, and they go to each other's homes together. And I never have to worry about my kid when he's with this group. It's a wonderful thing. I, I wish that adults could, could come and say, I want that kind of fellowship for us. Learn from the kids. I see several others here who have that same kind of home group, and it is absolutely marvelous. What's God doing? God is, by His own Spirit and His own design, raising up in the middle of the church examples of koinonia. People who are investing their lives together. And I believe these kids will be sole partners for the rest of their lives. No matter where they are geographically, I believe that they'll, they'll be together. That's what God wants. And, and, and I'm going to teach you more on this as, as time goes on. This is not the end of this sermon. This is just the beginning. But I, I want to tell you in this church, God's going to raise that up. He hasn't done it yet. We've, Frank, have grown so fast that it's tough to have a sense of community yet. But there's going to be one. I've seen it. In my prayer life, on my knees, I can see it as clear as day. And let me tell you two things God is going to do in the near future in this place. Number one, He is going to help us forget the categories. What's up here? That's all right. That's all right. I'm in between stories. Justin, in infant's room, 679, is not doing well at all. Parent, please attend to him as soon as possible. Justin, number 697. I'm sorry, 697. I'm dyslexic. Justin, 697. Okay. Or 
paramedics, whichever goes first. <laughs> All right, okay. So let me tell you what's happening here. You know, in Ephesians, the Bible says that God breaks down the dividing wall. In Ephesians, it says, we're strangers and aliens. And there's an indication in Ephesians that we've not only been strangers and aliens from God, we've been strangers and aliens from one another. Do you know what, what one of the things in the world that keeps us strangers and aliens is? Our categories. We relate to each other by categories. Where do you work? Where do you live? You know, what, you know, what do you, what, what theology are you? What, you know, all of that kind of stuff. I believe one of the things that God wants to teach us is when we hit that door, the categories are purely secondary. They just don't matter anymore. What matters is our common relationship in Jesus Christ. Yes, we will still ask each other questions, but it's questions so that I can love you better. It's questions so that I can understand you more. It's questions so that I can give my life to you. That's how God builds the church. And I believe that, that you know, one, one day uh, I heard a story about John Wesley who had a dream. And the dream was, picture this, he, he woke up at the gates of hell. And he was talking to the, the keeper of the gates of hell. Very grisly, grim, malicious presence. And John actually felt curious as to who was in hell. So he started asking questions. He said, have you got any Catholics in there? And the gatekeeper said, there are many in here. John just shivered. He said, Presbyterians? You got any Presbyterians? Lots and lots of Presbyterians in here, he said. How about Baptists? Many, many Baptists. And then, John was kind of in a new movement called the Methodists. And he said, you got any Methodists? Many Methodists. Well, you know how it is in a dream. Sometimes you just transport in, into another place. And, and that's exactly what happened in this dream. All of a sudden, John Wesley found himself at the gates of heaven. Found himself talking to the gatekeeper of heaven. And found himself asking the same question. He looked at the gatekeeper and he said... You got any Catholics in there? And the gatekeeper said, No, we haven't. We haven't got any Catholics. No Catholics in heaven? He said, You got any Presbyterians? No, we haven't got any Presbyterians either. Baptists? No, sorry, no Baptists. You got no Baptists? Methodist, you got any Methodists in there? Sorry. He said, let me save you, save you some trouble. He said, we don't have any denominations in here. Just Christians. Just Christians. That's the quality of God's church. I want the barriers when you hit those doors to drop. We don't have barriers in Jesus Christ. They're all secondary. We have differences that will be of great pleasure and great variety in the family of God. But we don't have barriers because Jesus Christ has broken down the dividing wall. Read it for yourself. Ephesians 2.15. Now, the second thing that God's going to do is this. I love this. 
God is going to teach you to get to, you, to get to know the person in the pew next to you. Now, I just need to let you in on a little insight here. I know it's hard for us to get to know each other when you have thousands of people coming to a church. And part of this, most of this is going to be, is going to be cured when we get these ministry centers going. You know, these congregations of one or two hundred people. Then we'll, we'll really begin to know each other. But you know why we need to do that? Because we're going to be embarrassed that we did not avail ourselves of what God put in the pew right next to us. God doesn't call us together by accident. Part of the solution of your life's problems is sitting right next to you right now, and you haven't even told them good morning. Now, that can be, and I get embarrassed when I don't understand, or when I don't know the people in this church. I get horribly embarrassed, and I'm going to get more and more embarrassed particularly when God shows me how much they have to offer to the church of Christ and to my life. Let me give you one illustration. And, and it's out of a different field, but, it, but, it, but it, it illustrates the dynamic very well. Years ago, there was an eminent historian, Chinese fellow, by the name of Dr. Wellington Koo. He was invited to the United States to give a lecture series at a particular place, and he was going toward that place, and he was going through the northeast, uh, through a university town. Well, the university heard that he was in town, and they begged him to come and give a lecture to them that night. Now, this was an Ivy League school. I can't remember exactly which one it was. It, it runs in my mind it was Harvard, but I don't, I, I, I don't know about that. But it was an Ivy League school. I do remember that much. This is decades ago. And so he graciously... Uh, accepted and, and, and so they quick ran and got the great hall ready for a dinner. They were going to put on a great banquet and, 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 and they, they set up the speaker's table and, and a great podium and, and so on and so forth. And, and Dr. Koo went in that night before they let in the, the crowd and he was very embarrassed. He was a very humble man. And, and he said, I, I really don't want to sit up here. Could I just sit on, down on the tables? Uh, with, some, with some of the students. And they said, well, okay. So he just went down there. They left the doors open. And here come these students in, you know. Each of them wanting their own table. And, and, and they saw this little Chinese guy sitting there. And, and, and they didn't especially want to sit with him. So they were all, you know, sitting around other places. And finally this one fraternity came in. A very prestigious fraternity came in late, you know. Fashionably late. And the only table left was the table at which Dr. Koo was sitting. And, and they, of course, they didn't recognize it. They didn't even know who was speaking that night. Some big shot. So they all sat down and, and uh, you know, kind of nodded to this guy. And they started serving dinner. They served the soup. And, you know, Dr. Koo's sitting there quietly eating his soup. And, you know, the president of the fraternity is kind of bragging him back and forth, you know, telling stuff, you know. And he leans over and says, I'm the president of the fraternity here. And went on with his stuff. And finally, he got a little bit, you know, maybe ashamed or, or, or embarrassed that he hadn't said anything to the little Chinese guy. So he, he looked over and he, he said, Likey Soupy? <laughs> well, <laughs> Dr. Ku just looked at it, nodded, went on eating. Well, at the end of dinner, of course, the president of the university got up and gave this long introduction to this eminent historian. Had as many degrees as your arm is long. And when he got done with that, 
up stands this little Chinese fellow and makes his way to the podium and barely being able to see over, delivers one of the most articulate and brilliant speeches on Sino-Soviet relations that you've ever heard in almost impeccable English. When he was done, the whole hall stood thunderous applause. Dr. Koo, in his familiar humility, just backed away and went back down to the table. The president of the fraternities, mortified, and he looks down at the little Chinese fellow, and Dr. Ku just couldn't resist. He looked up at him and he said, Likey speechy? <laughs> Someday we're going to be embarrassed. The people sitting right next to us have the exact spiritual gifts we need. They have the, they have the life experiences we need. You know, and we come in and we think, oh, what's their problem? They're the answer God's given us. God's going to bring us to know one another. Now, pray with me. God, we thank you for arranging our being here this morning. We thank you that you are calling us as your body. Father, I pray if there be anybody in here that is not a part of your people, that has not accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that has never said to you, Father, I am a stranger and an alien, and I can't pay for my own sins. Oh, God, I accept the grace of Jesus Christ who died for me on the cross. I want to be washed clean by His blood. I want to be made righteous by Him. Oh, Father, today I stand in gratitude for that gift and I accept it. Jesus, I ask You to come and live in my heart and make of my life whatever You want. And also, God, make me a part of Your people. Bring me into this great family, this great fellowship that you're building. God, all of us pray this. And we pray for the eyes to see you build in our midst that great city that we read about in, Jeru in, in Revelation 21. That new Jerusalem. Father, build us as a part of that city, we pray in Jesus' name.